1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. I'm reading tonight out of the New King James Version, it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. It's talking about people who have died, Christians who have died. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When a preacher preaches on Bible prophecy, an end-time Bible prophecy, if you're right with God, that message is a message of comfort to you, a message of hope, the Bible said, to you. Why? Because you're right. You're ready with God. You're knowing in your heart, if the Lord comes tonight, I'm ready to go. But if you're not saved, Bible prophecy either puts fear in your heart, speculation, or serious question marks. So as I preach on Bible prophecy tonight, I want you to be honest enough to ask yourself, as you're listening to the Bible, do you feel the comfort and the hope of knowing that everything is well with God, everything between your heart and the heart of God is clean, or do you feel speculation? Do you feel fear? Do you find yourself saying, what if this is true and I'm not ready? then as I always do, I always give an invitation. And we'll end this service in the moments to come by giving an invitation. And if you're here tonight and you're not right with God, I want to pray with you. Every service, I invite people at the very end to just meet me at this altar. Say, well, can't you just say a prayer and let me hide in my pew? Well, I could if I was trying to produce cowards. But God's not in the business of producing cowards. And we don't need any more camouflage Christians. We've already met that quota. We need young men and young women who are soldiers of the cross. And I don't do it for my personal reason. I do it because Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 8, If you confess me publicly before men, I will confess you openly before my Father which is in heaven. He went on to say in another passage, If you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before the Father and the angels. Now, straight English, what does that mean? Straight up, it means that if you're embarrassed of Jesus while you live on this earth, when you stand before God in eternity's morning, He is going to be embarrassed of you there. If you reject Jesus on this side of eternity, then you have forced Him in eternity's morning to reject you there. But he made it very clear that if you'll be humble, if you'll take that strength and courage and be willing to make a public and personal commitment when you stand before God, he said, I'll publicly defend you there. 
There may come a day when you'll stand before God. And there in fear and trembling before the presence of a holy God, you might wonder, oh God, what did I do in 1978? What did I do, oh God, in 1994? God, what did I do in 2015? And, and I, I, I can't possibly be forgiven. And the Bible said that God's going to have the book of life there. And when that Lamb's book of life is open, if you have received Christ as your Savior, the Bible said that God's going to say, I remember the day that you personally and publicly received Jesus Christ. And because you did that in straight humility, the Bible tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And when you stand before the Lord, He'll remember your sins no more. Hallelujah. The Bible says He'll remember your sins no more. That's the God that we serve. But it's a God that requires us to come by His term. The Bible tells us that there's coming a great prophetic event. By the way, if you're a new Christian, or maybe you're just seeking and this is all new to you, if you're watching online and you don't know the Bible at all, the Bible is approximately one-third prophecy. Some would say as much as 37% prophecy. Some scholars say that's high. But you can safely say that your Bible is about one-third prophecy. Over 80% of the prophecies in the Bible have all come to pass with complete and total accuracy. That should give even the skeptic a reason to believe or to search out the truth. I don't have any problem with people searching out truth. As a matter of fact, if people never ask questions about things that I say or I preach, I'm a little concerned. Because thinking people ask questions. Intelligent people ask questions. We need to be people who would say, is that really in the Bible? And if it is in the Bible, explain it to me. That's why those of you who know our ministry know that we do our best to focus in each opportunity that we speak, to focus on one subject, to narrow it down to bite-sized pieces, to explain that to you from the Scripture so that even your children can understand it. Because the greatest truths of the Bible are not complicated. The greatest truths of the Bible are not complicated. Prophecy is not complicated. The reason why many people are nervous about prophecy and shy away from it is because they've read a lot of books on prophecy and there's a lot of books written on prophecy that are about 70% speculation and reading between the lines and very little Bible. When it comes to Bible prophecy, be content to read what the Bible said and know that there are things that will not be explained this side of eternity. Because the Bible clearly teaches us in the book of Revelation, which many people consider to be the king of prophecy books, the book of Revelation says this side of eternity, we're only able to see the truth of God through a glass dimly or through a certain fog or through a certain veil of not understanding. But the Bible said in eternity you'll have complete fullness and the total recovery not only of mind but of interpretation of the truth of God and you'll understand it completely. When it comes to prophecy, if God said it clearly, we ought to preach it clearly. If God kept it somewhat veiled, then we shouldn't try to take what God veiled in prophecy and give it detail. 
because if God wanted it to have detail, He would have given it detail. What I'm trying to tell you is there's enough in the Bible to get you from where you're at to where God wants you to be. There's enough in the Bible to get you from where you're at today to where you need to be. But you've got to be a student of the Bible. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. A real Christian has made a commitment not only to follow Christ, but to learn His Word, to live His Word, and to love His Word. And if you'll just keep those three things as something that brings you through tough times, you'll always survive what you're going through because the Bible will always take you from where you're at to where you need to be. Come on, somebody dare to shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. One of the most common questions on the rapture that I'm asked is, I can't find the word rapture in my Bible. And the reason why you can't find the word rapture in your Bible is it's not in your Bible. Oh, well then it must be heresy that you're preaching tonight. No, we're preaching the Bible. Where did the term rapture come from? I receive this question a lot. Many, many times people that contact my office, this is a common question. Especially if someone invited them to hear me speak and I was preaching on prophecy and that word comes out and... Plus, there are certain individuals who have written books on the rapture that are heresy because they don't understand the Scripture. I recently was at a church that had an incredible division in their church because a book on the rapture had been written that had been circulated in the church by a Sunday school teacher, unbeknownst to the pastor. And this book was about 100 pages. It wasn't written by a professor it wasn't written by an individual who had a degree in Hebrew or Greek. It wasn't written by an individual who understood biblical hermeneutics or proper interpretation. It was written by a Christian who was unscholared but had what he thought was a revelation about the rapture and he wrote this book that was less than a hundred pages and people were reading that book and getting off of the truth and it almost split the church in half. When I preached there, I was quite hard. Shame on people who can read a book that's not even written by a scholar. Written by someone who does not have the credentials to interpret scripture. And you can be swayed from an integral part of gospel doctrine by one single book written by an unscholared author. Shame on you for wavering over something so foolish said it last night, I'll say it again. We need to be people who visit other books but live in the Bible. People get in trouble when they quit listening to what the Bible said. For example, one of the things that's permeating North America and around the world is there are some teachings on grace that are not true to Scripture. And the dangerous thing is a lot of people that teach falsely on certain subjects, most of the time 85% of what they have to say is good Bible preaching and teaching and people just automatically swallow the error. That's one of the most common questions we get as well in recent months. Questions about grace and teachings on grace. I always answer people with the same response. Any teaching on grace that makes you feel comfortable with your sin is heresy. Any teaching on grace that makes you feel comfortable with sinful living is heresy. 
Because Paul said, should we continue in grace so that our uh, sin, so that grace may abound, he said, God forbid. Now, how do you need interpretation to twist that? Should we continue in our sin for the sake of grace abounding, Paul said, God forbid. The Bible says in 1 John, if a person says they love God but do not keep his commands, that person is a liar and the truth is not in them. Thank you for all those amens. That's why they take the offering first. The term rapture is derived from a Latin word, raptus, R-A-P-T-U-S in the Latin, which simply means caught away or caught up. This Latin word is the equivalent to the Greek in the original, harpezo, translated caught up. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So this event that's described here, also described again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, also described in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, refers to a catching up of the church. And so though the word rapture is not in the Bible, it's what we define as the caught up. And it's found there in the scripture. Now some people falsely teach that there is no rapture and that it's a new doctrine and it was taught by a man by the name of John Darby in the 1800s and prior to John Darby in the 1800s there was no teaching on the rapture. Well, if you ever come across some of these writings that are spreading around, just remember that the people that are passing you that information are idiots. They have no ideas to what they're talking about because the teaching of the rapture goes back to the infancy of the new church. We have documented writings of the rapture and the teaching of the rapture as early as 150 years after Christ. We have it in 270, 350, the year 400, 1340, 1400, 1627, 1687, 1700, 1738. And I'll not bore you with the details, but the teaching of the rapture was written, documented, discussed, taught from the infancy of the church until modern day. So all of these individuals who are passing out these books that says the rapture is a new doctrine and there's not going to be any rapture, just remember who inspired their stupidity. Come on and someone dare an amen. Just be patient with me. I leave on Thursday. Furthermore, there are multiple examples of the rapture in the, in the Bible. There are not only examples of the rapture in the Bible, there are raptures in the Bible. Now, if you had time tonight, and obviously I hope you know that in one brief session, I can't teach everything that you would need to know about the rapture and the doctrine of the rapture in one service. I can't do that. We all know that. But what many of you do know is that in the New Testament, Paul said that God gave us throughout Scripture both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God gave us types and examples that fulfill prophecies and fulfill patterns and teach us of the ways and the wisdom of God. Now, when I say there are types of the rapture in the Bible, 
and actual raptures in the Bible, let me give you an example to help you. And let me give you perhaps the most common one that even your children will understand. Noah and the ark is an actual event, but it is a type and a, an example of the rapture. How so? Well, Noah, the Bible said, was a preacher of, the righteous, of righteousness. He represented the gospel. The Bible said that the ark was made out of wood. It's a type of the cross. How many doors did the ark have? How many? One. How many ways did God give us to get right with him? Jesus said, I am the only way that a person can be made right with God. The ark only had one door. Noah was given specific commands. Not more than one door, Noah. God gave him the architecture and the instruction in detail as to how the ark should be built. And he said, Noah, one door. Who closed the door? God closed the door. Who is going to close the final door of prophecy on this earth? God is going to close the final door of prophecy on this earth. For Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the knowledge of the end times was reserved for the Father only. The devil is not in control of final prophecy. The government is not in control of final prophecy. Israel, Muslims, radical terrorism have no control of final Bible prophecy. The United States Senate and the Supreme Court have no power over final Bible prophecy. It is in the hands of God alone. The only way to be saved in the days of Noah was to come through the only door by listening to the purity of the preaching of righteousness by a man named Noah. And then the Bible said that Jesus himself said when he was in physical body on this earth, I am the door. I am the door. The only way to get into the ark of safety is through Christ. Somebody needs to hear me right now. I'm speaking by the Spirit and by the gifts of the Spirit to somebody listening to me right now. Counseling is not going to solve your problem. Changing your medications has nothing to do with your recovery. No hospital is going to bring you back. No medical power is going to turn you around. No self-help group or self-help book is going to answer the questions deep in your heart. Your problem is not a psychological problem. Your problem is a spiritual problem. But if you'd come to Jesus Christ tonight by faith, the Bible said he's the door. And the Bible says all who receive him and trust in him, he'll not only forgive you, but he'll make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. The Bible said he will rebuild your mind that the drugs and the problems and the medications have destroyed. For the Bible said if anybody lacks wisdom, let the mask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. The Bible says the memory of the just is blessed. The Bible says put on the mind of Christ. There is a power in God to change your mind, change your life, change your heart. Oh, come on, somebody shout hallelujah. You'll pardon me if I get a little fired up about this, but I'm talking about people whose lives are changed by the power of God. Jesus said, I'm the door. 
The Bible said that when the judgment of God fell in the days of Noah, what happened? The rain began to fall and the waters of the deep opened up. Judgment came from below, judgment came from above. What did the Bible say happened? The ark immediately was caught up. The ark was lifted above judgment. As wrath fell upon the unrepentant, those who had come through the only door were spared of the coming judgment, and they were lifted above judgment. That is the rapture in a perfect type and an example. And if I had time tonight, there are seven raptures in the Bible that we could discuss. But there were actual raptures in the Bible. Not types, not examples, actual raptures. The first was Enoch in Genesis 5 and 24. The Bible said Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. In Hebrews 11 and 5, Paul the Apostle said, Enoch was translated by faith so that we should not see death. He was raptured, caught up in the twinkling of an eye, without death taken to be with God. The second documented rapture in the Bible is Elijah in 2 Kings 2 and 11. The Bible said Elijah was caught up by a whirlwind into heaven, and he too never saw death foreshadowing what we believers will experience being caught up in the clouds to be with the Lord and then of course Jesus himself left this earth by rapture in Acts 1 and 9 the Bible said and when Jesus had spoken these things while they beheld he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight friend I don't care who's telling you there's no rapture I came to tell you the Bible said there is a rapture and it's about to take place and those who love the Lord need to live ready every day the Bible is mentioned in the gospel of John twice in John 14 verse 1 the Bible said let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me for in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you and I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is not the second coming, because he didn't say, I'm coming to the earth. He said, you're coming to be with me. John chapter 11, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. When is the rapture going to take place? Great question. Again, for the sake of time, there are three fairly prominent teachings on this subject. They are oftentimes referred to as the pre-tribulation rapture, the mid-tribulation rapture, and the post-tribulation rapture. What do they entail? Well, they speak for themselves. The pre-tribulation rapture is that the rapture is going to take place before the great tribulation. Now, if you're a new believer or a seeker, the Bible says prophetically there's coming a seven-year span of time called the great tribulation. I'll cover this in more detail on Wednesday night when I preach on the subject, Is the Antichrist alive today? And I'm going to take you Wednesday night into the Bible and show you why the Antichrist 
is alive today. How we know that? From the Bible, not from my opinion, not from a novel I read in a bookstore, not from a movie that I watched in Hollywood, but from the Bible itself, I'm going to show you why the Antichrist is alive today. So we'll come back to this in a little more detail on Wednesday night. That seven-year span of time called the Great Tribulation will be marked in the infancy. It will be kicked off by the arrival of an international leader called the Antichrist. Now, we don't know who that man is by name at this point. But the Bible says that in the last days, immediately after the rapture, there will be the arrival of an Antichrist. He will literally be a charismatic political leader whom Satan himself will puppet and use. Why will the world accept an international leader? I believe the rapture of the church, the unexplainable absence of perhaps millions of believers on this earth. Imagine the chaos the next day on Fox News. Good luck explaining that. The Bible says that the absence of millions of believers is going to cause multitudes throughout the earth. People are going to know. You'd be amazed how many people don't go to church but know certain things that the Bible teaches. Many people are going to know exactly what happened. There will be many backslidden Christians who were raised in church spent their entire life in church, were taught the doctrines of the Bible, but somehow, some way, got wayward. The Bible said that when the Lord comes, some will be taken, but many will be left behind. And untold numbers of people that are going to be left behind are going to be Bible-believing Christians who did not live for the Lord. They transferred Jesus into their head, but took the commitment out of their heart. It is possible to know Christ and the Bible and truth in your head and not live with that commitment in your heart. Many years ago, I preached a message entitled Missing Heaven by 18 Inches because I read in a medical journal that the average distance between the human brain and the human heart is approximately 18 inches. And many people are going to miss eternity by 18 inches. Because they had a knowledge of the Bible in their head, but they wouldn't transfer the commitment into their heart. When I give the invitation tonight for you to meet me at this altar, I plead with you tonight. I'm asking you to get the religiosity from your head to the commitment in your heart. Get ready to meet the Lord. It's not enough to believe in God in your head. It's not enough to study the Bible intellectually in your head. There has to be a time when you say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. You're the only one who can make that decision. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people and you've got to make that preparation while you're alive you've got to make that personal public preparation while you're still alive after you're dead it's too late the Bible said in Luke 16 the dead man in hell could not change his address because God spoke to him and said there's a great chasm between hell 
and heaven. And once you're in hell, you can't get to heaven. But the good news is once you're in heaven, nobody can take you to hell. But you've got to make your decision while you're still alive. Some of you, God's speaking to you right now. And you're thinking in your heart, preacher, just give the invitation. I want to come. But I'm not done yet. I want you to keep that position in your heart. Keep that humility in your heart. Get ready. Because when we pray at this altar tonight, we're not just playing, praying some fluffy little religious prayer and having a little bless me club to go home and have coffee and chat about it. By coming to this altar tonight, you're saying, I want to be a real Christian. By coming to this altar tonight, you're saying, I want to live in victory over sin. By coming to this altar tonight, you're saying, I'm tired of all of the confusion that's in my life and in my head just because of being religious without being right with God. By coming to this altar tonight, you're saying, I choose Jesus. I choose His Word. I choose the cross. I choose forgiveness. I choose the blood that was shed for my salvation. Christian, I'm going to ask you to get ready because it'll take you courage. It'll take humility for you to turn to maybe someone you've invited and say, I'll walk with you. For some of you, it might be the first time you've ever done it. Others, it might be a recommitment. But don't anyone leave tonight without knowing if the rapture were to take place tonight, you'd be ready to go. How many can say a praise God? The mid-tribulation doctrine teaches that halfway through the tribulation, the rapture will take place. Now, for those of you that are students of prophecy, you know that that seven-year span, and again, I'll come back to it Wednesday when I preach on the Antichrist. But that seven-year span, the Bible says, three and a half years of that is going to be peaceable. The Bible says that the Antichrist, when he arrives as an international leader, he'll have a one-world leader, a one-world monetary system, a one-world military, and a one-world religion. But when he comes, he'll be the first political leader to successfully sign a peace treaty with Israel. But the Bible says that after three and a half years, he's going to break that. And when he breaks that agreement with Israel, the Bible says, then the wrath of God... The Bible said the world will never see the wrath of God like that before. They'll never see the wrath of God like it again. But for three and a half years, when he breaks his treaty with Israel, God is going to step onto the scene and brush aside every hindrance of unrighteousness on this earth. And the Bible said he's going to unleash his wrath and judgment like the world has never seen. Jesus said that if his father had not shortened that time to three and a half years, that none would be able to. To survive over a third of the planet is going to die in a short amount of time in that judgment over a third of the planet probably at this point two to three billion people are going to die in that three and a half year span then some believe in what's called the post-tribulation doctrine which teaches that we're going through the tribulation and that the rapture will take place at the end of that seven years. Let me just tell you that the weight of Scripture rests soundly upon the rapture taking place before 
the seven-year span of time. When I gave you the example of Noah and, and the ark, did judgment co come in the middle of judgment? Did it come after? Was the ark taken before, in the mid, after? They were spared from all judgment. As judgment immediately came, they were immediately taken up. And again, I don't have time to teach on the entire doctrine of the rapture, but I'm telling you that the weight of scholarship rests upon the rapture is going to take place before that tribulation begins. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Thessalonians that God saves his wrath for his enemies. And people say, well, I don't know how preachers can say that because there's been persecution all over the world against Christians. How can you say that just because you live in America? Here's their error in scholarship. They don't know the difference between persecution and tribulation. There has always been persecution. Jesus said in John 16, In this world you shall have persecution, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. But this is the great tribulation. This is not tribulation or persecution exacted by men. This is not terrorists beheading dozens or hundreds. This is not a crazed dictator in the Middle East trying out experimental chemicals upon his own people. This is not Jews in death camps. This will be the wrath of God. This is not going to be the persecution of men. This is not going to be three and a half years of the persecution of human beings. It is going to be three and a half years of the almighty God of heaven and earth stepping from glory and touching this earth for all unrepented sin. America will pay a price for the millions of babies that have been murdered. America will pay a price for perverting the scriptures on marriage. America will pay a price for its mockery of God and the church and the Bible. But the Bible said God has a window of mercy until this takes place. But once the rapture takes place, hell's going to break loose. And Jesus said if the Father didn't limit it to three and a half years, none would survive. The Bible says that during that time, Every mountain will be made level. What type of power is going to hit this earth that causes every mountain to be made level? The tallest mountain on the planet is Mount Everest at 29,000 plus feet. Mount McKinley here in Alaska, just over 20,000 feet. The tallest mountain in North America here in your great state. Every mountain will be made level. Every island will be cast into the sea. Revelation 9 and 18, the Bible says one third of all of the people on the earth were killed by three plagues. Fire, smoke, and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of horses. This indicates a third kind of mankind killed by fire. Now, I don't believe it is literal horses. A lot of these descriptions that these men of God wrote in the Bible really describe in detail some of the modern military equipment that we have today. But the Bible tells us it's coming. 
The Bible says when the horrendous worldwide flood came in Noah's day, Noah told those who were prepared, come into the ark in Genesis chapter 7. When judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, Lot and his family were told, come out of the city. But notice this trilogy in the scripture. In Noah's day it was come in. In Lot's day it was come out. But in our day it will be come up. God is getting ready by the sound of a trumpet to call to his people, come up and be with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me tonight. Musicians, would you come and prepare with a song of invitation? There's so much on this subject tonight, and I hope you know that I love to preach the Bible. I never grow weary of preaching the Scriptures. But I'm going to be respectful of your time each night. But I hope as you've listened to the Scripture that you have found truth that would challenge your life. I begin by telling you that the purpose of Bible prophecy is to be comforted by these things. Why would such things comfort you? Because when you realize the power of the judgment that's coming to this earth, there's an incredible comfort in knowing I've made peace with God. Thank God. Thank God my heart is ready. Thank God if it happens tonight that Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life. Thank God that I'm living in victory over sin and sin is not living in victory over me. For the harder prophecy is preached, the more of a comfort it would bring. Thank God that God had mercy on me. Thank God that I had enough humility one day to bow on my knees and say, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. But for those of you who are not ready to meet the Lord, if I were here tonight and I were not living ready to meet the Lord, you couldn't get me out of this sanctuary with a stick of dynamite until I made peace with God. There's no drug worth going to hell over. There's nothing in the bottom of that bottle worth going to hell over. There's no illicit relationship worth going to hell over. There's no compromise worth going to hell over. There's no pleasure or hedonism in this world worth going to hell over. There's no fetish worth going to hell over. There's no vice worth going to hell over. If you're here tonight and you don't know that you're right with God, that can all be changed by a simple, personal, and public commitment to Christ. What happens when a person really knows the Lord? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone comes to Christ, they become a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things become new. What happens to a person when they come to Christ? 1 John 5 and 4, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And what is the world? It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What happens when a person comes to Christ? 1 John 2 and 15, you are no longer what you were when you got saved. For some of you were sometimes the children of darkness, but now you are a light unto the Lord. Peter replied in Acts 2, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and this promise is to you and to your children even to the Gentiles and all who have been called by the Lord our God did you know that one of the great signs of the last days in Revelation the Bible says that in the last days one of the signs that would be a major signpost for you to know that it's almost over is that the world would be given over and the word in the Greek is pharmakia in Revelation the Bible says that in the last days the world will be given over to sorcery that word sorcery in the original Greek text is pharmakia it's where we get the word pharmacy and speaks of a world dependent upon pharmacy, drugs, and medication. If you knew your Bible every time you watch television, and probably eight out of every ten commercials that come on are trying to put pharmacia into your life. The average American is on 11 medications. The average American is on 11 medications. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you're on a medication you're going to hell. I'm telling you that the Bible said here's how you'll know that the world is in the last moments of prophetic history. The world will be dependent upon pharmakia. I met a mother recently when I was preaching on prophecy that came to me and told me that her little boy was on over 20 medications. Over 20. The Bible said that the devil came to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I came to give you life. I came to give you life and that more abundantly. By the way, we're gonna have an awesome night tomorrow night as we preach on the power of God to heal. Because God's not only the God who has miracle power to heal your physical infirmities, He's a God who has the ability to heal everything. Heal your mind, heal your spirit, heal your past, heal your heart, heal your body, heal anything that you dare to lay at his feet and say, you said you came to give me life. Now every night I give an invitation and I'm perfectly aware of the fact that to make a personal and public commitment to Christ takes humility. Of course it does. But I remind you that Jesus died for you publicly. Jesus died for me and my sins publicly. Say, Tiff, did you ever make a personal and public commitment to Christ? Absolutely. I remember it like a video. I was six years old. My father was pastoring a church in a place called Mount Morris, Pennsylvania. A town of about 400 population. We had over 500 people in church. When I grew up, until we left that town and moved to the capital, when my dad took a church in the capital at Harrisburg, my earliest memories was I thought everybody in America was a Christian. Because pretty much everybody where I lived went to my dad's church. 
my principal, all my teachers, all my classmates, everybody in town that I knew was in church on Sunday. I just thought everybody in America was a Christian. But my dad had an evangelist in for a week of meetings just like this. His name was L.K. Dodge. He went by L.K. Dodge. He was a great man of God. He's gone home to be with the Lord. But I remember at the age of six, I was sitting over on the left side of the church. And at the end of the service, he gave an invitation just about like what I'm about to do. But I remember what he said. He said, your father may be a Christian, but that doesn't mean you're a Christian. He said, your mother may be a wonderful Christian, but that doesn't mean you're a Christian. And as he said that, I thought, well, my dad's not only a Christian, he pastors the church. When he said, your mother may be a wonderful Christian, my mother was over on the piano playing a song of invitation. I remember looking at my mother and thinking, she's the best Christian that I know. But he said, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. You have to make this decision on your own. I don't remember everything he said after that. I just remember thinking, I'm not right with God just because I go to church, because my dad's the pastor, because my mother's a Christian. There's got to be a time in my life when I make my own decision. Now, at the age of six, I wasn't in the mafia. I wasn't a drug dealer at the school. I hadn't murdered too many of my friends at that age. About the only addiction I had was Halloween and candy. But at the age of six, when he gave the invitation, I remember at the age of six, I remember it took courage because I remember still to this day, the thought went through my mind, what are people going to think? You're the preacher's kid. But I thought, you know what? I want to make my own decision. I want to serve the Lord. Not because my dad does, not because my mom does, not because friends do. I want to serve the Lord because I want to live for him. I want his blessing on my life. I don't want to live under the curse of sin. I want to be ready to meet the Lord when all of these things in prophecy take place. And I made my own public and personal commitment. It took courage, even at the age of six, it took courage for me to get to an altar. But I remember coming from my seat, there was a wooden altar across the front of that old Assembly of God church, and I knelt down and prayed the sinner's prayer with L.K. Dodge, an evangelist. People say, what kind of commitment can a six-year-old kid make? I made one that lasted my entire life. My entire life. I have no stories of backsliding. I have no stories of being in high school and turning into the devil himself. He saved me. He satisfied me. He sustained me. From that day till this day, his word has always been true. Now listen. I love you enough to tell you it's not always easy being a Christian, but it's always worth it. It's always worth it. And when the trumpet of God sounds and you're caught up to be with the Lord in the air, no matter what kind of hell you're going through on this earth, you're going to have hands raised and saying it was so worth it to live ready to meet the Lord. It was so worth it to lay my head to the pillow every night and know if the Lord were to come, I'd be ready to go. I'm pleading with you because I feel the Holy Spirit pleading with people. 
I'm spending a little time right now because I feel the Holy Spirit. I've done this for 37 years, and I know when the Holy Spirit is tugging at a heart that's been stubborn one day too many. Tonight's your night. Get right with God. As they begin to sing the song of invitation, I'm just going to kneel at this altar, and I'm going to begin to pray that God will give you the courage to make your recommitment or your commitment. Christian, I'm going to pray that God will help you. There's someone you have with you tonight and you're not sure that they're going through the walk with Christ where they should be walking you turn to them and say I'll walk with you you can invite them to come and we're going to pray together before we're dismissed you come right now Sing it one more time. Come on, God's speaking to your heart. Come on. This is your night. Come on. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm away. going to pray with these that are at the altar I want you to pray this simple prayer with me out loud and without shame because when you come to an altar of prayer you're not coming to face God as your judge you're coming to face God as your heavenly father that's why I love that scripture in Proverbs 28 whoever conceals their sins will never prosper as long as you're hiding from God and hiding behind your sin, it is impossible to have the divine prosperity of God active in your life. Whoever conceals their sins will never prosper. But whoever confesses them and renounces them will receive mercy. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? That's the promise of God. Whoever confesses them and renounces them will receive mercy. What does that mean, renounce? It means in childlike faith, tonight you say, devil, I turn my back on sin and I turn my heart to Jesus. There has to be a turning to God and a turning away from sin. That's what we're doing here in prayer. One more scripture that will bless your heart. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, God promises 100% of every person that comes to Him and calls upon His name. Salvation is a gift given. He withholds it from none who call upon His name. 
So this isn't pray and hope. This is not a spiritual Russian roulette where we're going to pray and spin the cylinder and hope your cylinder comes up clean. No, 100% of all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray out loud. Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for the truth of your Bible. I receive it tonight and I obey it. Because in my heart, I choose to be ready to meet the Lord. I admit my sin. And I'm willing to turn my back on sin. And turn my heart to Jesus. Heavenly Father, as I come to your altar tonight, I choose Jesus. I choose the cross. I choose forgiveness. I choose the blood that was shed for my salvation. And I ask you to wash me, cleanse my mind, my body and my spirit. Make me holy in your eyes. For this night, I turn to Christ and receive salvation as the gift of God. I want to live for you. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Give me your power to be what you want me to be. And now according to your truth, which cannot lie, I am no longer the property of sin. I am tonight a child of God, and I'll never be the same. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me, for healing me, for delivering me. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Give God a mighty hand of praise tonight.